For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this evening is The Hellish Horseman. Hellish Horseman, Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. So welcome back now to our Sunday evening study in the Revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, where at this time in the book now, we're considering uh, the cycle of trumpets. And in the language of chapter 9, verse 12, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Now the passage before us reveals the blast of the sixth trumpet in this cycle. It is the third cycle out of seven cycles in the book, seven literary cycles. And this is the second now of three intense and severe woes that are poured out particularly upon those who dwell upon the earth. And if you remember with me now, the reason these judgments are being poured out is because they have exalted themselves against the people of God. Like the people of Egypt who came before them, uh, those who dwell upon the earth have exalted themselves against the people of God. And like those Egyptians who have come before them, uh, those who dwell on the earth now are facing judgment because of their pagan idolatry and because of their rejection of the one true and living God. God is pouring out his judgment because of their idolatry and because of the persecution of his people. This, as we come to this sixth trumpet, this second severe woe, this is not a chronological account of particular future events. I think it's important that we continue to remind ourselves of that fact. This is not a chronological account of future events, but rather this is a sequential revelation of symbolic visions given to the apostle John. If you remember, John is exiled to the Isle of Patmos and he's receiving these visions from the Lord himself. And these visions are symbolic visions uh, representing judgments that are being poured out at the end, in the end times, in the last days. These symbolic visions represent judgments poured out by God during one particular period of time in history, namely that period of history between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. These judgments are being poured out in the church age, in the age which we find ourselves living now. However, just as the Lord has described many of the judgment, judgments that the disciples them, themselves faced in the first century as the beginnings of sorrows or the beginning of birth pains, if you remember the Lord's discussion, with his disciples on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24, he describes all of those judgments that would be poured out even during their days. And he said, these are but the beginnings of sorrows. That word meaning birth pains, the beginning of birth pains. And just as we know that birth pains only increase in frequency and in severity, there is a linear progression through this time or this period in history in which these judgments also increase in frequency and in severity until the end. Paul said that during this time, evil men and imposters will grow what? Worse and worse with every passing day. It seems like with every passing day in our own time, certainly deceiving and being deceived. Now with that in mind, with that in mind, 
We also see see a growing intensity or a growing severity in these symbolic visions given to the Apostle John. I think these visions uh, typify that linear progression of an increasing severity, uh, an increasing frequency in these judgments. The wrath of God, we know, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that wrath, that pouring out of wrath, that revelation of wrath, increasing in severity throughout this period and ultimately reaching its apex at the return of Jesus Christ. It's all going to terminate in that great day of his wrath when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. The destruction of Babylon, the final judgment of the wicked, and there at the end, the consummation of the kingdom. Now, that intensification is in part communicated through the introduction of these severe woes in the cycle of the trumpets. Each woe is a pronouncement of impending judgment. That's what a woe does. That's what the the purpose that it serves. Each woe is a proclamation, if you will, of that the wrath of God is imminent. The wrath of God is at the doors. The judgment of God is about to fall. And we see that exemplified in several places in scripture, but from the word of God to the prophet Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter two, listen to this. God says, write the vision, Habakkuk, make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, the Lord says, wait for it because it will surely come, it will not tarry. And then the Lord, through the prophet Habakkuk, pours out woes upon an idolatrous people. Woe to him who increases what is not his. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. In other words, woe to the idolater. To the prophet Isaiah, woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him for the reward of his hand shall be given to him. He's going to get what he, what he works for, right? He's going to get what's coming to him, so to speak. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees. Right? We see the Lord's own pronouncement of woes. For example, in Matthew 23, and those pronouncement of woes against the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees, right? Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. The scribes say, Lord, by pronouncing these judgments against them, you reproach us also. Yeah, woe to you too, you scribes. Uh, the use of that word woe, again, communicates an impending judgment. The use of the woe, that ooi, that, that word in scripture communicates an imminent judgment. God has determined judgment against you, and that judgment is not idle. It is at the very doors. Your destruction, Peter says, will not slumber. The wrath of God will fall. That's what's being communicated under these severe woes. Those two premises, right? One, that we see an increasing severity, an increasing frequency to God's judgment. There is a linear progression to the judgments that are being poured out during this age, and those judgments are at the very doors. It is an impending judgment, an imminent judgment, a severe judgment communicated through the, worst, the use of this word, woe. The trumpet, in addition to that, the trumpet is often also used in scripture to sound an alarm associated with impending judgment. Here in the cycle of trumpets, 
the angels are sounding their alarm. And the alarm declares, it signifies or signals an impending woe. Look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 13 with me. The sixth angel now sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. We begin in verse 13, as we have begun before, we begin with what John heard. It's important to remember, we see a a distinction between what John hears and what John sees. And in verse 13, at the blast of the sixth trumpet, John hears a voice. The source of that voice or the location of the voice, the origin of the voice is the four horns of the altar, which is before God. This voice originates from the altar, which is before the throne of God. In other words, it's seated there just outside the most holy place in the heavenly temple. Now, if you remember with me and you think back about the text that we've looked at so far, this is the third time in John's visions that we've seen this particular altar revealed in the heavenly temple. Okay. This is the same altar referenced in the loosing of the fifth seal. You remember that? I think that's Revelation chapter six. It's the altar under which the souls of slain martyrs cry out to God, right? How long, holy and true? How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? This is the same altar that we saw in Revelation chapter eight, verse three, where in the loosing of the seventh seal, That angel having the golden censer stands at this altar. He offers up the prayers of the saints with incense upon this altar. And it's described there that that prayer rises before God who is seated upon the throne before that angel then pours out the golden censer in judgment upon the earth. It's described as an altar that is before the throne of God. And here in chapter nine, it is before God in verse 13. In other words, It's the altar that sits immediately before the most holy place. That's not the altar of burnt offerings. That's not what this altar is for. This is rather the altar of incense, the altar of incense. And that's significant here in the book of Revelation. Under the fifth seal, those slain saints are praying, aren't they? They're praying to God, crying out to God from under this altar of incense, from under this altar on which the prayers of the saints are offered, And they're crying out to God to pour out his judgments and to avenge their blood upon the earth. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? Under the seventh seal, it's those prayers of the saints that are offered up to God with much incense by the angel. And as it says there, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then we see the angel take the censer, fill it with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So each time we see this altar mentioned, an altar upon which the prayers of the saints are offered up to God, We see then God respond by pouring out his judgment. And what's the picture then there? If the prayers of the saints are being altered, offered on the altar of incense, those prayers rise to God who is seated upon his throne and God responds with pouring out his judgment upon those who dwell on the earth. What is that communicating to us? It communicates to us, one, that God has heard our prayer and that two, God is answering our prayer and the answer to the prayers of the saints offered up on that altar of incense is God's judgment upon the wicked. Do you see? 
God hears our prayer. And prayer is one of the means through which God executes the decrees uh, that he has decreed, those decrees written upon the scroll that are to be poured out during these last days. We're, reminding, we're reminded again that our prayers are, are heard. And it's an answer to the prayers of God's people that God's judgment is poured out upon the wicked. I couldn't help but think about that this week because I, uh, this week, saw the body cam footage from the, the shooting in Nashville, which is just a horrific and tragic, one of many, just another, this tragic event that took place at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. But they released the body cam footage of the officers that had gone in. And the thing that struck me, um, uh, in addition to those officers taking out the shooter, but as they're uh, in the hallway and they're approaching the area where this you know, despicable person uh, was, uh, they basically had to step over the body of a young girl who was laying in the hallway. Um, she's laying on her back, obviously been killed by the shooter. And it just grieved me, right? The monstrosity of that act for somebody to go into that school and kill a little girl like that. Kill a little girl. How long, oh Lord, holy and true, before you avenge our blood upon those who dwell upon the earth, right? How long, O Lord, holy and true, before you pour out your judgment upon the wicked? That should not stand. That will not stand. It will not stand. Why? Because God will come through in judgment. God will send the Lord Jesus Christ back to make all of this right. Amen? To establish his kingdom, to establish his throne in righteousness. It will not stand. And it will not stand uh, because God's people... We'll be praying, Lord, that that takes place. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Pour out your judgment upon the wicked. Establish your kingdom. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? The prayers of his people are a means through which God executes his decrees concerning this wicked and perverse generation. They are a means through which he has determined to bring to pass all things that he has decreed, including the vindication of his truth, the vindication of his righteousness, the vindication of his people. Now, in verse 14 then, in the hearing of John, it's this voice from the altar that addresses the sixth angel. Look there at verse 14. This voice from the altar saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. The fallen angels are those who are bound, right? They are those who are restrained from doing their will. These are fallen angels. So this is similar to the demon locust horde that we saw under the fifth trumpet being loosed from the bottomless pit. These are demonic forces, demonic spirits intending to do harm. And notice they're bound at the great river Euphrates. Their location is significant. Euphrates was, the Euphrates was a large river uh, located to the east. We've talked about that before too, that direction from which the enemies of God come, that direction from which worldly philosophies originate. The Euphrates was a large river located to the east in the land of Shinar. And the city that sat along the, the banks of the Euphrates River, I'll give you one opportunity to guess what city that was. What city sat along the, Babylon? 
Babylon sits along the banks of the Euphrates. Out of the land of Shinar, from the city of Babylon, out of the east, along the banks of the Euphrates, is where the enemies of God and the enemies of people of his people have often come. That's where paganism flourishes. That's where idolatrous deceptions and worldly philosophies originate. It's symbolic. The Euphrates, Babylon, typological. It's symbolic of worldly philosophies today. It's symbolic of wickedness. It will be the great whore, Babylon, that is cast down in Revelation 17, 18, 19, at the end of the age, that system finally destroyed. And it's where that seductive harlot is from. In Revelation 17, it's the harlot that has committed fornication with the kings of the earth. It's where the inhabitants of the earth became drunk with the wine of her fornication. And it's the harlot who holds in her hand the golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. She lives, if you will, in Babylon. This is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Drunk with the blood of the saints, drunk with the blood of the martyrs. Do you see the connection? God is pouring out judgment. Why? Because these idolatrous people have exalted themselves against the people of God and because of their idolatries, because of their pagan worship. Uh, God, again, pours out his judgment upon those who dwell on the earth for those reasons. If you remember in chapter 7, during the cycle of the seals, at the loosing of the sixth seal, four angels are also released upon the earth in judgment. There are similarities here. Again, these these, uh, cycles overlap. It was granted to them, those four angels, it was granted to them to harm the earth and the sea. However, under the cycle of the seals, they could not harm those who had received the seal of God upon their foreheads. Here in the cycle of trumpets, at the blast of the sixth trumpet, there again is a release of these four demonic forces from the east. They are given authority to torment those who dwell upon the earth, all those who do not possess the seal of God upon their foreheads. So what does that connection, that similarity tell us? God knows how to preserve those who are his. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are preserved through these judgments. They're allowed to kill, but only those who do not have the seal of God upon their foreheads. Only those who have not been indwelt by his spirit. Only those who are not united to his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Only those who have not put their faith and trust in him. They're allowed to kill. They're allowed to torment, but not those who belong to God. Right? Remember, And again here, the numbers referenced in apocalyptic literature have significance. And the number four here is also symbolic. Four uh, communicates fullness. In this case, the fullness of the earth. The four corners of the earth means over the entire globe. The four winds that blow across the entire face of the earth. Here, four angels who have been given authority to kill, and that authority given over the entire globe. Under the seals, it was over a third of the earth. Here that's been extended, right? We see an increasing, an increased severity. This is therefore a universal judgment, not simply upon a particular nation or a particular people, but upon all those who dwell upon the earth, upon all mankind who has rejected Jesus Christ. Verse 15. So these four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to, ki- to kill a third of mankind. They had been prepared for this very purpose, to judge mankind for his sin against God. And at that appointed time, God is sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass, and he has appointed a day and an hour 
in which these things will come to pass at the appointed time referenced in the word of God. That time referenced even to the prophet Habakkuk. That time has now come. And it's pinpointed in the sovereignty of God to the very hour that has been appointed for it. Remember the prophet, the Lord to the prophet said, at the end, it will speak. It will not uh, stand idle. It will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. So then, think with me. Like the demon horde released from the bottomless pit in the first of these severe woes, the second woe also now emphasizes then demonic activity on the earth. What are we speaking about so far in these woes that are poured out in judgment? We're speaking about demonic activity on the earth. Principalities and powers that are behind the systems of this world that are under the sway of the wicked one. In the first woe, to torment men and not to kill. In the second woe, they're given authority to kill. The fourth horseman is given authority to kill a fourth of mankind. Now the severity is intensified, this judgment resulting in the death of a third of mankind. We see the increasing severity, right? The increasing frequency. These demons were bound in the sense that they were not able to carry out what they had been given to do. They were waiting for the appointed hour. But now that the appointed hour has come, they've been released. And when they're released, a demonic horde was under their control. You can see that demonic horde in verse 16. The army or the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. And I heard the number of them. In the first woe, we see this swarm of locusts come out of the bottomless pit. And part of what is communicated by the use of that imagery as an innumerable number. You couldn't have stood in Israel and have numbered a swarm of locusts that were devouring everything in their path. You couldn't have numbered them. Here, the same is true. The number literally referenced in verse 16 is twice myriads of myriads. I think those who have literally translated this number as 200 million are doing a disservice to the text. Uh, This is a symbolic or a figurative number that literally refers to an innumerable host. This is like the innumerable horde of locusts that pour out of the bottomless pit. It's an army of incalculable immensity. And what is this army consisting of? It's consisting of demons, foul spirits poured out on the earth. That third of the angels that was cast down with Satan when Satan fell, right? It's like John saying to the host of, uh, of the host of heaven in Revelation 5, when John says, I saw thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. It's a number like that. It's twice myriads upon myriads. Now, if you think about that with me, this demonic horde being loosed under the authority, if you will, of these three or four demonic spirits and those representing principalities and powers that lie behind the wicked systems of this world that is under the sway of the wicked one. Think with me, that shouldn't be a mystery to anyone that the Bible speaks of principalities and powers in that way. What do you think is behind the plague of abortion, for example? 55 to 60 million babies murdered worldwide every year. 55 to 60, that's the ones we know about. 55 to 60 million babies worldwide murdered every year. The number's dead. For example, just to name a few, in World War I, 
World War II, the Bolshevik Revolution, the atrocities of Chairman Mao and the Great Leap Forward, those numbers are staggering. It's almost impossible for us to get our, our heads around those. In a matter of, uh, of years, brief, a brief time under Chairman Mao, 50, 60, some estimates go as high as 80 million of his own people murdered under that regime. One time in history, in one country, under one dictator. The numbers are staggering, right? What lies behind the culture of death that has encompassed the entire globe and now, frankly, encompasses our country? We live in a country that has embraced a culture of death. What are these angels? What is this horde given to do? They are given authority to kill a third of mankind. They're not going out with actual swords and weapons to kill them. They are the principalities and powers behind the systems, behind the ideologies that kill. And I would submit to you, the fact that they have mouths and tails with heads suggests that they have reason and the ability to deceive with their words, right? The foul poison comes out of their mouth. The deadly toxin comes out of their mouth. What does that tell you? These are wicked ideologies. These are lying deceptions. This is false religion, false teaching. How many countless millions have perished under false teaching? Who today are perishing under false gospels, false teaching. How many millions perish in their sin and wind up, they have responsibility for their own sin, but they're sitting under false teaching. They're sitting under error, deceived by error. Principalities and powers. These are hellish horsemen. From there, we, we transition then from what John hears to what John sees. Verse 17. And we get a look at what this demon horde uh, looks like. And the, again, this vision symbolic John says, thus I saw the horses in the vision. Notice it's the horses in the vision. This is a symbolic vision that is communicating a spiritual reality. Thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth, blue, sulfur, yellow. Those incidentally are the colors associated with a very hot burning flame. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, suggesting that they're fierce. Out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. What John sees is a terrifying vision, right? These war horses and their riders. Devastation pouring forth from their mouths. Verse 18, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. Now, again, put this together with me. What we're seeing are symbols Symbols of a vision that have been given to John that communicate spiritual realities. What does a sign do? A sign points us to something. These are signs given to John that point us to spiritual realities. This death that is poured on the, on the earth by these four demonic angels and their horde of hellish horsemen, this death that is poured out, this death is spreading by what comes out of their mouths. And what comes out of their mouths is described as fire, smoke, and brimstone. Where do we see that language used in the Bible? I would suggest to you that uh, there are a couple of places, one in particular that comes to mind where, I think it's the only place where all three of those terms are used, is in God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
The vision that is, that is given to John emphasizes the, that the death is a result of what comes out of their mouths and what comes out of their mouths is as deadly as the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone that was poured out upon Sodom and Gomorrah by God in judgment upon those people. In other words, there's being, uh, and I think that's in, entirely intentional, there's a connection being made between God's judgment upon the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment upon those who dwell on the earth uh, during this time where a third of mankind will be killed. They're killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. That deception, those wicked ideologies, those doctrines of demons are compared to the fire, smoke, and brimstone that God poured out upon Sodom. And the, pot, the, the power is in their mouth. Do you see? The power is in their mouth to kill. Deadly fire, smoke, and brimstone pours forth from their mouths and points to a spiritual reality. Now we see, we'll see soon in Revelation 11, uh, the two witnesses in Revelation 11, also to them, fire proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. The Lord Jesus Christ destroys his enemies with a sharp two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. And again, what is that referring to? That refers to the, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll be judged by his word. The, the fires we'll see in Revelation 11, proceeding from the mouths of the two witnesses. Uh, there are people being devoured by that flame, and that's symbolic of uh, them being devoured through their witness. We'll talk about that when we get there. In the case of Jesus Christ, that refers to the condemnation of unrepentant sinners by the words that come from his mouth. In the case of these demonic forces, it's what comes out of their mouths that is deadly. It's a reference to deception, error, the doctrines of demons. And it's the doctrines of demons, those bankrupt ideologies of the Babylonian whore that leads to the death of men, not just the physical deaths of men, but the spiritual deaths of men. So destructive is it, in fact, that John, in describing the judgment of God in this way, is alluding to that destruction of God poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Now, notice where their power or their authority to kill resides. Verse 19, their power is in their mouth and in their tails, where in their tails there is the head of a serpent, okay? Like the demon locust under the fifth trumpet. Their tails are like serpents having heads. With them, they do harm. And again, that word harm, the same word there that described the locusts. Uh, they work unrighteousness or they work injustice. And they're working unrighteousness or injustice through the words, the ideologies, the deceptions, the errors that are pouring forth out of their mouths. The reason that wars, brothers and sisters, rage over the entire globe is because of the deadly ideologies that spew forth from the mouths of these demonic forces. Wars are based upon demonic, worldly philosophies, worldly ideologies. Those wars, those forces, killing mankind like the fire, smoke, and brimstone that was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. These monstrous acts have a demonic root. In his commentary on Revelation Joel Beakey says this. He says, think about the millions of people who've been killed in war. Think about that for a moment. According to some estimates, between 1480 and 1941, Britain engaged in 78 wars. Those are wars where you're going into another country and killing people. We see one going on right now in Ukraine where 
one dictator takes his army, marches into another country, and begins killing people, spreading death. Britain engaged in 78 wars, France in 71 wars, Spain in 64 wars, Russia in 61 wars, Austria in 52 wars, Germany in 23 wars, the U.S. in 13 wars, it's only because she's fairly young, China in 11 wars, and Japan in 9 wars. That doesn't include all the, often the merciless killing that takes place among their own citizens within the borders of their own country. War in the words of Beaky, is the ultimate obscenity. The ultimate expression of man's depravity and man's rebellion against God. Jesus said of these perilous times that there would be wars and rumors of wars. That's just one example of the way that death spreads across the globe. It's one example of the way that a way in which a third of mankind, and again, that number, symbolic, but a way in which mankind, a third of mankind is killed, At the blast of the sixth trumpet, God removes the restraints on these hellish horsemen. And mankind, rather than turning to Christ in repentant faith, they embrace these doctrines of demons, they give full expression to their depravity, and they perish. Perish physically, and they perish in hell spiritually. They are devoured as if by the mouth of lions. They are seduced as if by the lies of serpents. Death and deception follows in their wake. Do you see? Listen to that imagery in Psalm 58. Listen to Psalm 58. The psalmist says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. You see the connection, the imagery? They're spewing poison, and that poison is coming out of their mouths, and their poison is like that of a serpent. It's deadly. It's deadly. You listen to those lies, they're deadly. They're like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. That's the prayer of the psalmist concerning the wicked. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. See, he uh, again uh, points to this image of a lion to express their ferocity and ask God, praise that God would break out their fangs. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind and in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges the earth. We rejoice to serve and worship of God who reigns in righteousness, amen? Who upholds righteousness. The scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. Praise God for his righteousness. And because God is righteous and because God is holy, 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 there will come a day of vindication in which God will vindicate his righteousness, in which God will vindicate his holy, holiness in pouring out his judgment upon those who are unrighteous and unholy. And in that day, God's people will sing hallelujah, right? Hallelujah. 
The saints of God may be physically killed, but this is far from undermining the spiritual security that they enjoy in their union with Christ. These hellish horsemen given authority to kill a third of mankind, but only those who do not have the seal of God upon their foreheads. That does not mean, brothers and sisters, that we won't face physical persecution, physical suffering, or even physical death for our faith. But we have this promise from God. He knows how to preserve those who are his. And we believe and are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've committed to him, namely our own souls until that day. So what do we do? What do we do then? Well, first we begin by hearing the alarm that is sounded by these trumpets. Hear the alarm. You can hear them on the pages of Revelation, can't you? Hear the alarm. And what do we do at the sound of the trumpet? We cling to Christ in faith. Brothers and sisters, there is no turning to the right or to the left. He who overcomes, to him I will grant the crown of life. There is no turning to the right hand or the left. He who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is not fit for the kingdom. Cling to Jesus Christ in faith. Flee false teaching. Have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. Flee error. Stand opposed. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness. And look at it with the horror that we should. Because that horror, is a, it, that's, not, that's not a mere academic difference. We're not talking about semantic differences. We're talking about heaven or hell, life or death. Error, doctrinal error kills. Deception is deadly. It is like a deadly plague of fire, smoke, and brimstone that proceeds from the mouth of a hellish demon. And God's people should look at that error with the horror that it deserves. And we should also look in pity upon those who dwell on the earth and preach the gospel. And in a text that we'll consider in more detail next week, the wicked are characterized by their refusal to repent in the face of this judgment. They're characterized by their stubborn and rebellious grip on those ideologies that even in most cases, they know to be false themselves. Right? You take something like that wicked and absurd ideology of evolution right? as a... a an origins story, if you will, of the beginnings of all things. That has been debunked time and time and time and time again. It is a magnificent fiction. And yet people, in order to stop their ears and turn their faces from truth, they would suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness and they turn to ignorant and absurd ideologies like that just so they can avoid the truth that is staring them in the face. Verse 20 describes them. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts in the face of obvious judgment. That judgment refines, purifies, and fuels the faith of God's own people, taking away the dross as if from gold, and at the same time hardens the heart of the wicked. And they are hardened in their rebellion, in heart, they are hardened in their intransigence, in their obstinance against God, and they will perish under the judgment of God. And God will, in the judgment of the wicked, uh, 
be glorified in his justice or God will in the grace and mercy poured out upon his own people be glorified in his grace and in his mercy. May God be glorified in it all. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we uh, thank you for the opportunity to study this text together and to think through uh, this wonderful book that you've provided for the encouragement and admonition of your church. I pray, Lord, that we would take good instruction from it, that we would be encouraged to cling to you through faith. Lord, we praise you and thank you that you've preserved us with your seal upon our foreheads, your very spirit indwelling us, our union to Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that we are yours through faith, not through any works of our own. And we're grateful, Lord, that you uh, promised to preserve us through these uh, trials. Not that we won't face difficulty, Lord. We know that it has been not only granted to us to believe, but also to be persecuted for his name. But Lord, we know that you are able to preserve us uh, through these things uh, until the day of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to be glorified together with him. We praise you and thank you for those glorious promises. I pray, Lord, that Jesus Christ would come quickly. I pray that your truth, your righteousness, your holiness will be vindicated upon the earth. Uh, Not for our own sakes, Lord, do we pray these things, knowing that we're not worthy of these things, but our Lord Jesus Christ is. And I pray, Lord, that you would vindicate or avenge your people, avenge your truth, avenge your righteousness and holiness. And Lord, may your will be done on a new heavens and a new earth uh, as it is in heaven, uh, in a kingdom where righteousness dwells for your eternal glory and for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, all in the power of the Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.